spiritual journey. I want to hear from those who have taken this path before me. This podcast focuses on them and listening to their stories uninterrupted. My name is Hiba Masood and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala along that journey. I first met Imam Sahib Sultan on a weekend retreat organized by the Muslim Life Program at Princeton. Imam Sahib and his wife Arshi welcomed me to the Central Jersey community with open arms, and I think I'm not alone in saying that they go the extra mile to make everyone feel included, even if you're not part of the university. Imam Sahib's journey started in the Midwest. He describes himself as an Isna baby whose parents were heavily involved in the establishment of Isna's headquarters in Indiana. During an Isna convention, then-president Dr. Ingrid Masson recruited him to be among the early graduates of the Islamic Chaplaincy Program at Hartford Seminary. He has served as the first full-time Muslim Life Coordinator and Chaplain at the Muslim Life Program at Princeton for the past 12 years. Within the world of Muslim chaplaincy, he's known as a trailblazer and prominent community builder. A few months ago, Imam Zahib was diagnosed with a rare and aggressive form of cancer. This was devastating news for the Central Jersey community. In this episode, he talks about the diagnosis and his own journey to being content with the Khadr of Allah. There are many lessons in his story and his ability to see everything in life as an opportunity to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which should help make us grateful for both our blessings and our trials. I grew up in uh, the Midwest. I grew up in Indiana. And I'm often referred to as an Isna baby. Uh, and what that means is that I was among the um, children who were part of that early generation of people who had established themselves at the Islamic Society of North America. And um, the reason why we were there as a wave of families was because in 1981, this society was established with the hopes of trying to create a national organization, an umbrella organization that would bring Muslims together from across the different parts of the country on a common platform of a positive agenda for moving Islam in America forward. So, um, you know, I was, uh, I, growing up, I was part of a religious family, uh, an observant family, uh, a family that took Islam very seriously, um, but also a family that took the project of Islam in America very seriously. Um, and I think that I was definitely caught up in that wave um, of excitement uh, as a child um being kind of like in that environment like as a Isna baby like how did that shape you i think it 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 gave me a very strong identity um <clears throat> I, I think my identity was very much uh linked to my to culturally and religiously so there was this idea that that i that we were in america for a for a purpose um that god had brought us to this country for a purpose uh, that we had a goal and a mission uh, to fulfill, um, and that it wasn't some sort of random immigration pattern that got us here. Um, and so I think from a young age, there was this idea of having fundamental purpose built into my identity. Um, and so my religious and cultural identity kind of really merged 
in a very unique way because of that experience, I would say. Um, how did you kind of come to the conclusion that Islam was going to be an important, play an important role in your life? Well, that's a very good question. Um, and it was quite a journey because um, growing up in Indiana, <clears throat> on the one hand, there was the ISNA experience, but on the other hand, there was the experience of going to public school and um, fundamentally having my identity and my existence constantly questioned and challenged because uh, I was one of the only Muslims and I was one of the only brown people at the school. Um, and uh, there was this assumption that there must be something different, something unique and something foreign about my existence. And uh, as any other child, you know, you don't want to be that um, foreigner. You, you want to just meld in, you want to just get along with your friends um, and you just want to be part of the uh, class that you're that 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 you're made up of, and so um, I think I've I was always challenged with this idea of how much of my Islam do I want to publicly identify with when I was young, right? Mm -hmm. um, like how much of your how much of the religious identity, the spiritual identity, uh, w was was foremost in my in, in my consciousness. Um, and this is, of course, a question that I think a lot of us have to deal with in a secular society, because in a secular society, we're often told that your religion is something that's private, um, and your spiritual identity is something that you uh, do at home, but it's not something that you bring out into the public. And um, I think one of the experiences that um, uh, took me from Indiana as a young boy to uh, Saudi Arabia, where my father had gotten um, a job at Umar Qura University, which is a university in, in Mecca. Um, and I grew up for a number of years there in Saudi Arabia. And I went to an international school. Um, and that international school had children from many, many different um, cultures. Uh, we had students from different parts of Africa. We had students from different parts of Middle East, uh, different parts of American and European experience. And so it was a really, really diverse um, experience that uh, that I had there, and uh, but but again, you know, Islam was something that was um, was 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 ingrained in us as part of our everyday normal mm -hmm. activity. Um, but I didn't have to ask that question of, you know, how much of my Islam do I want to publicly associate with? Because in a in a country like Saudi Arabia, everyone is Muslim, and so. That's not even a question that you have to ask. So what happens is that after a number of years of living in Saudi Arabia, then I moved back to the States. And I think it was when I moved back to the States, and at this point I'm now 16 years old, and I had to make some really uh, important decisions about how I wanted to identify as a person. My parents were still living abroad. I was living with my sister in Virginia. Um, and when I went to school um, at that point, um, you know, uh, I had to uh, make a decision as to whether I wanted to um, have my faith mm -hmm. as part of my, you know, narrative at the forefront of my narrative. And, um, you know, I felt comfortable with it. It just, it's just something that spoke to me. It's something that um, is just something that uh, was natural to me. And so I didn't want to deny that element, um, even though 
uh, it caused problems, you know, and among the problems that it caused is that, you know, people identified me in a particular way. Um, and uh, the, the, the project of, of just trying to integrate myself into a classroom was not as easy. Um, but I don't think I regret that choice. How did you get on this path of wanting to go into chaplaincy? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so when I was in college, I majored in uh, journalism and political science. Um, and I had done everything in college to set myself up for a career in journalism. Um, and that was the path that I was on. Um, and when I was a senior in college, 9-11 happened. And I was part of the MSA board. Um, and that the rest of that uh, year, and of course, 9-11 happened at the very beginning of the academic year. Mm-hmm. And so the rest of that year was a blur, uh, you know, in my eyes, because just about every single day, uh, you know, I was speaking at a library or at a church or at a synagogue um, and trying to build bridges and trying to explain my faith um, and trying to do the difficult work of healing a community that was very much, you know, injured and bruised by the terroristic attacks. And um, what I found during that time was that I really fell in love with community organizing and I really uh, enjoyed the work of uh, building bridges between faith communities. And I really enjoyed um, explaining my faith and answering people's questions about Islam. And um, initially when uh, I had that experience, I just thought that okay, uh, that's an interesting uh, thing and maybe it's going to be part of the periphery of my life. Uh, But after I graduated from college and I was searching for what I really wanted to do um, and as I was struggling through um, my my pathway in journalism, um, you know, this experience kept coming back to me. And, um, you know, I, I, I didn't quite know that there was a way to uh, make, uh, you know, make a livelihood out of that experience, um, you know, but that experience kept coming back to me. And I always thought of it as wanting to do more volunteerism, wanting to be more involved in the community um, and not realizing that there were actually career pathways in which I could, you know, help my community and serve my community um, in these ways. Um, and what ended up happening was that through my work in journalism, I received a uh, contract uh, through Wiley Publishers to write a book called The Quran for Dummies. And that's part of the famous dummy series. And um, when I was writing that book, um, which was a book to try to explain the Quran to people of other faiths, um, you know, it, it dawned upon me how much I really had a passion for this. Um, and that uh, journalism was Uh, not actually cutting it out for me in terms of how interested I was in terms of this particular aspect of my life. And so I started thinking a little bit more deeply about it. And initially my thought was that I would go into academia and I would become a researcher and I'd become a professor. Um, But um, on, in one fateful ISNA convention, I met my mentor, Dr. Ingrid Mattson, and, you know, kind of shared with her my dilemmas about my future career choices um, and what I wanted to do with my life. And, you know, she introduced me to chaplaincy. And, um, and, and, and up until then, I had heard about chaplaincy, but only in the prison context. And that's not a context that I particularly saw myself in. 
but she introduced me to the idea that chaplaincy exists in hospitals and in educational settings and in many other communal settings. And so um, the idea of going to Hartford Seminary and studying with her uh, was very appealing to me. And so I dropped everything my entire life in, in Chicago, which is where I had moved after college. And I moved to Connecticut and I joined the Hartford Seminary. And at that time, I joined it kind of blindly, not knowing where it would lead to. But alhamdulillah, it led to a career in educational chaplaincy. Um, did you did you choose educational chaplaincy? Because that's kind of where you had like the birth of this experience with the MSA or? Yeah, I mean, I think my, my passion was to work with youth. And mm-hmm. my experiences of community organizing were off of a college campus. Um, and I think that for me, uh, the college campus represented the best intersection between community organizing and um, intellectual creativity, uh, which is what I had kind of fallen in love with uh, through my research and uh, through my academic study of Islam. And so I thought that, you know, being on a college campus would allow me to, um, you know, would allow me to uh, both be uh, be somebody who could grow that intellectual side of myself, as well as someone who could work on the ground, you know, roll up my sleeves and really take care of a community. And um, that's what it's proven to be. What was it like learning with Dr. Matson? Um, I've been I've been blessed with many good teachers in my life, and the one who I think I would uplift the most as an example of that is Dr. Ingrid Matson. Um, you know, from the moment that I met her at this night convention and she helped me um, see the light when it comes to chaplaincy uh, to this very moment, you know, she has been such an incredible mentor um, and she's always been very supportive. She's always been there to give me really good and solid advice. Um, and I remember when I was leaving Hartford Seminary, uh, and I was moving to New Jersey for the Princeton University job. Uh, the one thing that saddened me um, was leaving her uh, because I had learned so much from her and had gained so much from her good company. And um, I remember asking her when I was leaving for some advice, and she gave me one piece of advice, which I'll share here, which is that she said, just remember that anytime you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. Um, and she knew that, um, you know, my life was going to be a life in which there was going to be a lot of invitations and a lot of opportunities and a lot of, um, you know, engagements. And, um, and, and she wanted me to know that um, anytime I would say yes to something, I would be saying no to something else. Meaning if you say yes to speaking at an, at an event, for example, um, you know, then you are saying no to family or you're saying no to um, some other engagement or you're saying no to rest or you're saying no to uh, your personal relationship with, with Allah, you know? Um, And so uh, that sort of advice really helped me think about my life. That it's not just about the opportunities you get, but it's also about the opportunities that you make and that when you pursue opportunities, um, what are you saying yes to and what are you saying no to when you say yes to certain things? Um, so that's one of the many pieces of advice that she's given me. Um, and to this day, she's just been in touch with me and my family. Um, she leaves us voice notes that are very encouraging. 
um, and, you know, just kind of has been a rock in our lives. Can you talk about uh, Muslim Life at Princeton, um, how it came to be, and um, what what kind of the vision for it was? Yeah, so um, I was hired in August of 2008, and so it's been about 12 years now. And um, what I uh, came into was a student community that um, had uh, a history of an MSA, but had periods of activity and inactivity. And so the goal was to establish a very serious Muslim life program where uh, there would be a consistency that students would experience when they came to Princeton and that they would experience a vibrant community and a community that was uh, loving and compassionate, a community that had a lot of intellectual resources where people could explore their faith um, and a community where people could, uh, you know, work together as volunteers um, and as ethical makers of society. And th- this was kind of the, the the fundamental mission that we had was to create this vibrant community uh, in which people could really um, feel the presence of, of, of what it meant to be brothers and sisters mm-hmm. and what it meant to explore their faith and what it meant to um, engage in, 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 in ethics and what it meant to engage in works of compassion. And what we found is that that message very much resonated with a larger community that was around us. And it was not limited to the students at Princeton University. And so this was something that was unexpected. Uh, I, did, I did not know the New Jersey community very well, um, and I didn't expect it to be this way. Uh, but the New Jersey community is a wonderful community. It's an, it's an awesome community. And especially at that time, I think it was looking for just exactly those type of things. And so there were uh, people from, um, from outside the university who contacted me and said, you know, can we get involved? And can we get people from outside uh, of the community involved in the activities that you're doing? And I said, why not? You know, this should be an open community and we shouldn't use the privilege of Princeton University to be exclusive, but rather we should have an inclusive project. And so um, one of the things that I'm most proud of is that the Princeton University Muslim Life Program is a town and gown community, um, which means that uh, people from the town um, are uh, most welcome to most of our activities and events and to participate in the building of the community. And so that's what it's been. um, And we have uh, you know, a few hundred people who are, uh, you know, who consider this to be their spiritual home. As one of the first graduates of the Islamic Chaplaincy Program at Harvard Seminary, what was it like to see the world of chaplaincy grow within the Muslim community and also to be a mentor to a lot of other Muslim chaplains? Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, uh, there are uh, individuals who I knew in the context of, um, you know, youth um Halakas and uh, who I knew in the context of, um, you know, youth programming who have now uh, themselves become chaplains, uh, whether in the education arena or in another part of the chaplaincy field. And so it's been a very exciting thing to see in my uh, many years in chaplaincy, almost 15 years in chaplaincy, to see the field grow and to see younger people come along. and it's given me an opportunity to be a mentor, which is a really fantastic opportunity 
because when you go through something like chaplaincy, there's not really a playbook that somebody gives you. It's, it's really something that you build a set of experiences and those experiences shape, you know, how you're going to do chaplaincy and what you're going to learn from chaplaincy. And along the way, you're bound to make a lot of mistakes, to make a lot of errors. And so, um, you know, it, 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 it helps to have uh, mentors uh, because, you know, everyone who's, who's been through this path has, been, has, been, has made their fair share of, of, of mistakes and learned from the path. And so <clears throat> it's been really great to um, have a younger group of uh, people uh, you know that I can that I can talk to, uh, that I can give advice to, that I can check in with, um, and that I can um, you know fundamentally shape their chaplaincy uh, through the experiences that I had early on. I think the people know that um, if you ever come to Muslim Life at Princeton, the other face that you'll always see is your wife Arshis. Mm. Um, can you can you talk about how you met and her role um, in Muslim Life at Princeton and, and bringing this vision about? Yeah, so um, I met uh, Arshi when uh, it was when I was a first year at the Hartford Seminary, um, and at that time, uh, because my work had started to become more serious in chaplaincy, um, I knew that I wanted to get married and I wanted to have somebody who would be a partner for the work that I was doing. And um, in Arshi, I saw somebody who had a lot of um, similar values and goals, uh, but who offered a compliment that she was quite different than I was. Um, whereas I was uh, softer on the edges, she was harder on the edges, um, so to speak. And she was a good organizer. Uh, she was somebody who was decisive. Uh, she was somebody who was strong-willed. Um, and she's somebody who I just knew would uh, be a, a good compliment to the work that I wanted to do. And so even the decision that I made to marry was very much based on what would be good for the work um, that, I, that I felt God had called me to. And, um, and alhamdulillah, it's proven to be so. Um, I mean, just uh, recently, uh, Princeton University um, honored both of us to be included in the class of 2020 um, as honorary members because of our um, extraordinary efforts and our contributions to the university. And the fact that both of us were invited to be part of the class speaks volumes of how the community as a whole has seen her role. And uh, she's been very nurturing and nourishing toward the student community in particular. Um, I mean, there's been students who, who have reached out to her in the middle of the night, um, you know, um, asking to talk to her and she's made herself available. There's been students who have you know, had financial difficulties or difficulties with their families and they've stayed in our home and she's been an incredible hostess. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the type of roles that she played um, have, been, have, been, have been really, really um, incredible. And I think in some ways it helped create this culture of family within the Princeton Muslim life community, you know. Um, and that was uh, furthered when, alhamdulillah, we were able to adopt our daughter about three years ago and bring her into the community as well. And just that, just that culture of family, just that culture of, you know, we're your family away from family, uh, which a lot of people, I think, um, you know, uh, needed in their life at that time.
and continue to need in their lives at this time uh, has been really important. Now, um, shifting gears just a bit, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the mindset you were in when you got your diagnosis. And for anyone that's read your blog, you sound really calm and content with the Khadr of Allah. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you got to that point. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, um, the diagnosis really came out of the blue. Um, you know, I had, uh, it started off with, um, you know, my, 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 my pains didn't start off with anything that seemed that serious or I, I would have never imagined that it was, um, you know, stage four cancer. Um, you know, I had some pain, I had some stiffness in my shoulders and I had some pain in my back. And eventually over the weeks, that pain started to become more prominent in my abdomen. And that's when I uh, decided to reach out to my GI doctor and say, you know, something seems to be awry. And so the first thing that he said is, you know, let's just get some scans done and see what's going on. And um, as soon as we got a scan done, um, you know, it, it was apparent that there was a pretty large mass that had formed right behind my liver. And uh, soon thereafter, um, it was diagnosed that I had stage four bile duct cancer. Um, and this is a very rare and very aggressive cancer. Um, and the prognosis uh, for anyone who has this cancer is never good. Um, but, you know, something that I'll say is that, you know, I think all of these years of spending time with religious teachers and spending time, you know, preaching the good message of patience, you know, comes to bear in these moments, right? Um, I think in, in, in most of my life, I haven't really been tested with a lot of hardship. Um, and yet I was the one who was always preaching to people about how to live through hardship and how to be patient during times of trials and tribulations. And now my trial and tribulation was here. And the question for me was, how was I going to react? And I think that there was only one way in my mind to react, which is to have taslim, which is to have acceptance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's will. Um, because Allah ta'ala is the one who is wise. He is the one who's in control of all affairs. And this is something that I've known at a fundamental and deep level and something that I've been preaching for so long. And so um, it was time for me to accept that message for myself into my own life. And so um, the blog posts have been, um, you know, a way of me, of my, uh, have been a way for me to express, um, you know, my inner contentment um, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's decree um, almost immediately, like there's just never been a moment where I said, why me? Or there's never been a moment where I wondered, um, you know, uh, why Allah was testing me in this way. I just accepted that every single human being has to go through challenges and they have to go through trials and tribulations. And some of these trials are very severe but this is the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings us closer to himself. And this is the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings us closer to the home and the paradise from where we came. And so for me, in some ways, it's, it's a great uh, opportunity. And only Allah knows, you know, what the result of this illness is going to be. Um, you know, only Allah knows what the end result is going to be. But I know that it's a, that I, I know that it's a really great opportunity for me to grow in my faith and for me to grow in my connection with Allah 
uh, and it's a really good opportunity for me to earn good deeds and it's an opportunity for me to rectify my situation with a lot of people in this life. Um, I mean, I'm very, very grateful that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave me a diagnosis and a prognosis that gives me some time. You know, there's people who get hit by a truck and they're done, you know, they're, they're dead and they don't have an opportunity to say goodbye to people. They don't have an opportunity to prepare anything for their family. They're just, you know, gone from this earth and that's it. And in this situation, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given me plenty of time to prepare myself, to prepare my family, um, and to leave behind some good deeds um, as I look towards sunset. What, um, what does that preparation kind of look like for, for you and your family? I think on, the, on an individual level, there's the preparation of the soul, right? Mm-hmm. And so it means, you know, increasing in my ibadah, increasing in my, in my worship. Um, you know, increasing in my connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and trying to purify my heart from anything that would be displeasing to God. You know, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَوْمَ لَا يَنْفَعُ مَالٌ وَلَا بَنُونَ إِلَّا مَنْ أَتَى اللَّهَ بِقَلْبٍ سَلِيمٍ That on that day, neither your wealth nor your children will avail you, only a purified heart. And so for me, you know, whatever amount of breath and, 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 and life that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives me, um, I want to make sure that I'm working on my heart every single day and trying to purify it and trying to bring it closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and trying to remove the veils between me and God. So there's the preparation of the soul, you know, and that looks like a lot of worship. Um, and then, but in terms of preparing the family, um, you know, we established a trust um, that would um, have some financial security for my family in the case of what we consider to be the inevitable. Um, and we've also, um, you know, established a will so that there's no confusion about how things should be done after I am gone. Um, I also have an advanced directive so that when my health deteriorates, my family is not confused about how I would like to have been taken care of. Um, so between the trust and the will and the advanced directive, um, you know, these are just the ways in which I can help, you know, prepare my family um, for, you know, what is the likely outcome. Um, but ultimately they have to do their own work. Uh, they have to do their own work because, you know, there's only so much that I can do. Uh, they have to, um, you know, uh, attach themselves to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on their own. Um, I can't do that for them. Um, and they have to learn to accept this decree with peace. It's not something that I can force them to do. There's only logistical things that I can do to help make their physical life a little bit easier and more comfortable. In your blog, you talk a bit about your experience with healthcare and the need for a more holistic healthcare approach. And I was wondering if you could share a particular story that I really loved about how you asked a nurse to let you listen to some Quran while you were in pain and how that helped you. Yeah, yeah, thank you for asking. Um, yeah, and so my experience of the US healthcare system is very poor. Um, you know, I would say that, you know, it's not holistic at all. It's not, it's not, um, at all focused on the heart and soul and the fullness of the human being. 
And one of those experiences that I shared in my blog is that um, early on, I, w- I went through a procedure that caused a lot of pain in my abdomen uh, when I came out of the procedure. And, um, you know, I, uh, I was kind of um, asking the nurse, is there anything that I could listen to? And this is something that, you know, she just kind of ignored. And she said, I'm sorry, we don't have anything. And it was only after asking several times that finally there was a nurse who said, do you have your phone with you? And I said, yes. And she helped me put on Quran onto my phone. And um, it was, you know, by listening to Quran in that moment of uh, great pain that uh, there was this calmness, you know, that just kind of came over me. And this, um, the pain uh, started to go down. And, you know, my heart was just so much more serene at that time. And this is an example of how the U.S. healthcare system, you know, they don't really look at the fullness of the human being and the fullness of what it takes to heal. And they don't use the different senses that are there. Um, And if you look at hospitals, they're very stale. There's no paintings. There's no, the architecture is very bland. Um, There's no greenery. There's no uh, flowers. There's no plants. There's no fruits. There's no vision of life. And when you become hospitalized, you're treated like a prisoner. You're, you're kind of left in a room for uh, hours upon hours of the day. And you don't even get to go outside and have fresh air. Um, and uh, these are things that just seem to be totally, um, you know, fundamentally opposed to uh, good care. Uh, that seem to be totally fundamentally opposed to um, you know, what would be considered reasonable, reasonable care that anybody would need in their time of illness or during their time of sickness. Um, so those are experiences that led me to believe that the you know, U.S. healthcare system needs a lot of reform. In one of your blog posts as well, you, you talk about how kind of different stages of your life have been kind of miracles or miracles have come out of them. And I was wondering if you could just share maybe some advice on how others can sort of recognize these miracles within their own lives. Yeah, it's, it's all about the heart. You know, it's all about, um, you know, opening one's heart to the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. For the ones who search for Allah, Allah searches for them. And when Allah searches for you, Allah shows you the signs and Allah shows you the miracles and Allah shows you um, the greatness of, 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 of the depths of life. Um, and, you know, I think that that's the key. You know, the key is Allah. I think, you know, once a person um, really attaches themselves to God, and really um, tries to see their life through the prism of Allah and, and sees their lives as lives that are being gently led through by the gentle hand of God, then you will start to see your life in a very different way. And you'll start to see it as a miracle. Um, you'll start to see it as a sign of, of, of the divine presence. And you'll start to see it as this, as, 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 signs of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So one of my teachers, you know, said that every single moment, God is trying to reveal his names to you, right? And so what does it mean to live your life in such a way in which you see God as revealing his names to you, right? 
And mm-hmm. so throughout the day, if we, if we go throughout the day and we, and we think at this point, what is at this point of the day, what, what names has Allah revealed to me so far? Right. Um, well, I woke up in the morning and I had breakfast and, um, you know, I, I played with my daughter and, um, you know, you just kind of start going through the day and you start asking yourself what names of Allah have been manifested. You know, what names of Allah have been revealed to me throughout just these few hours that I've been awake. Right. And if one goes through that sort of exercise, then one constantly sees Allah and the names of Allah in their life. And if you see that, then you, then, then there's no possibility to see your life as something other than a miracle, you know, um, and it's not possible to see your life as something other than it being directed by the divine, you know, by God. Um, so that's my advice to people, you know. That's really beautiful. Um, Mitchell, I just have one last question. I was wondering if you could give us all some advice on how to be grateful in the face of tribulations. Yeah, I mean, gratitude is the most important part of a person's iman, a person's faith. And, you know, as um, many of you know, uh, gratitude and faith are parallel in the Quran. Um, that what is opposite of uh, what is opposite of iman is um, ingratitude, and what is iman is gratitude, and um, that's fundamentally what it's all about. You know, the the Quran and Islam is meant to cultivate a grateful human being, um, <clears throat> and um, you know the reality is that you know all of us necessarily through the nature of life have to go through hardships we have to go through trials we have to go through tribulations but that should not make us ignorant of the privileges and the blessings and the things that we sh- we ought to be grateful for and the reality is that in the modern world most of us live like kings and queens when it comes to modern amenities um you know, the type of homes that we live in, the type of transportation that we have, the type of access that we have to education, the type of access that we have to work. Um, all of these things are considered to be the privileges of kings and queens in history. And um, if we um, are living our lives in such a way that we think our lives are deprived um, and depraved and we don't see those blessings, then ultimately um, it's going to cause us a lot of misery. It's going to cause us a lot of sorrow. Um, And this is the very nature of ingratitude. That ingratitude makes a person even more ungrateful. And a person who is more ungrateful only sees things in a more and more bleak way. Whereas the way of gratitude is the way of positivity uh, and the way of identifying one's blessings and seeing one's blessings and being able to um, realize the goodness in their life. Um, and this becomes ever more important when you are going through hardship. Um, because as I said in one of my essays, you know, um, as much as people may feel for me right now, um, I don't want them to uh, think that I'm in some sort of really difficult situation compared to the people who go through compounded suffering, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the, like the single mother who um, struggles to put food on the table for her family. 
um, and is also struggling with her health. Like that's that's really compounded suffering, you know. Mm-hmm. And so the Prophet ﷺ, he said that anytime you're going through hardship, look to people who have less than you, right? Because it could always be worse. It could always be so much worse. Um, and that will yeah, inculcate gratitude within you that even though you have a difficult test that you're going through, it's not as difficult as it could be, right? Um, and so um, that's my message about gratitude is that it's essential to one's faith um, and, um, and, and cultivating it is not actually that difficult. Cultivating it is easy. It's just about identifying the blessings that one has in their lives and being thankful for it, saying alhamdulillah, shukrullah. And um, it is about using the blessings that we have in the best way that they're meant to be used so that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blesses us with even more and gives us even more contentment with what we have. Um, And ultimately, uh, the choice uh, is ours, whether we want to be grateful or ungrateful. And if we're going to choose the path of ingratitude, then we should just know that it's a miserable path um, and it's a bleak path and it's a dark path. Um, And it's not a path that's really worth going down. The path of gratitude is the path that is really worth achieving and 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 trying one's best to cultivate in their life thank you so much for your time and yeah um, you're welcome and you know um please give my salam and hugs to arshi and radia i will thank you so much for your time amen amen and yours too نور المنازل يا محمد يا من خالق من نور ربه يا من سمي قبل